Here we have the first homicide, the first premeditated, violent taking of another human being's life, a human made in the image of God. And as we continue in uh, the chapter of Genesis 4, we realize that Cain never repented. He never sought to turn aside from his ways. He never sought God's forgiveness. He never lamented over his sin, but he lamented over the curse that God had placed on him. He only cared once he was punished, when he faced ills for what he had done. He had no remorse, no consideration for the people he had hurt, or the pain that he had caused, or the life that he had just taken. He only cared when he was punished. And he says, it's greater than I can bear. Why? Well, he was worried that he was going to face vigilante justice. He was worried that someone was going to come along and try to right the wrong that Cain had uh, committed. He was worried that one of Abel's relatives, or perhaps uh, one of his brothers or sisters, we're not quite sure who it was, but he was worried that they would make an attempt on his life. And so he was sent out to wander. And he wandered in a strange land, a strange uncharted land that he had no idea, with only a mark from God to protect him. He was sent out into the land of Nod. And Nod means wandering. It means uh, kind of wandering in a wilderness. And it's described as being east of Eden. You could probably say it's east of east of Eden because we know that Adam and Eve were cast out to the east of Eden. And so they're already, uh, you can see the direction with which humanity is moving and it can kind of be captured in this phrase, east of Eden. They're going further east, further east from Eden. They're getting further and further away from their creator, creator from their home. And wandering would have been picked up immediately as a curse from the original hearers, the audience, because that was Israel when this book was first delivered. It was delivered to the Israelites in the desert. Wandering. It was delivered to wanderers. It was delivered to people who were under the curse of God. They knew well what it meant to wander. And wandering is what you do when you have no home. When you have no place to rest your head. You have no land to call your own. You have no sense of security and comfort. You're out in the wilderness and you don't know where you belong. And Cain stands as a message to us. Without God, we have no hope. Without God, we are wandering. And without God... Well, we're simply wanderers in a dangerous and dark world. So let's get into the text. Genesis 4, verses 17, we're going to finish the chapter. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adar, and the other was Zillah. Adar bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man, wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we start with a marriage. Our verse starts with, uh, the passage starts with a marriage. It starts with a newborn son. And Cain is married. Um, and it seems he already has a wife. It says he knew his wife in sort of past tense. He, he already had a wife. She's not mentioned before now. But they uh, seem to have been married before Cain killed his brother. I'd imagine it would have been a hard task trying to convince any woman to marry you after you just murdered your own brother. So she's probably already married to him. And it's probably even harder to convince any woman to join him in wandering in the wilderness. So she luckily, uh, unluckily, was um, kind of chained to him early. And she is out there in the wilderness with him. And some people were a bit confused as to who Cain's wife was. Because at this point, we only know a few human characters. We know Adam and Eve, we know Abel, and we know Cain. And then all of a sudden, this woman kind of shows up Cain's wife. We don't know who she is. And a lot of people go, where did he get his wife? How did this happen? Well, the answer is uh, a little gnarly. Um, Cain was probably either married to his sister or to a niece. Oof. And we're not sure uh, about who his wife was. Uh, all we know is that she probably likely was closely related to him. We might be like, man, that is brutal. I would not want to be married to my sibling. Uh, and this wasn't as big of a deal back then as it was now. And I'm not saying that because back then the culture was different. I'm saying there was genetically uh, a close related marriage would not have had a high res uh, It wouldn't have been as high of a chance of uh, producing genetic mutations in the offspring. Uh, in this early human civilization, humanity had not really undergone any serious genetic mut mutations yet. Uh, by the time of the Mosaic Law, we see in Exodus and Leviticus when you're, uh, you're not allowed anymore to marry your sister or marry your niece or anyone really related to you, even cousins, uh, it's because uh, genetic mutations had become a serious problem. And if you were to intermarry with someone closely related to you, your children would uh, face many struggles and, and they'd be quite deformed and it wasn't ideal. But at this early stage, it wasn't as big of a problem. And Cain and his wife named their son Enoch. Enoch. And that name actually shows up a few times in the Bible. Uh, and they establish a city. Interesting. Because if you remember, Cain is sent out to wander, and yet he goes out to this land called wandering and decides he's going to settle down. He's not going to wander. He wasn't content to wander as God had said. Rather, he settled and he stayed where he was and he wanted to build for himself a legacy, something that would outlive him, something that would uh, be a testament to uh, his enduring name and he built a city and he named it after his progeny he named it after his son Enoch but as we see this wasn't the legacy I'm sure Cain was intended to leave in the Bible cities are not usually spoken of in a positive sense the Bible doesn't actually have a really uh, good opinion of cities uh, in the book of Genesis we're going to find that there are some cities mentioned and they're usually associated with sin and rebellion uh, if you guys have read the book of Genesis, you could probably immediately start thinking of some cities like the Tower of Babel. You can think of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed. Uh, you can think throughout the city, uh, the history of Israel, cities like Tyre, Damascus, and Nineveh, and Sidon, and Babylon fall under God's judgment. Cities are never usually seen in a positive light. 
And in the Bible, there's this great resistance to the idea of a city. And so obviously, God prefers the country. That's where we need to be. That's not quite true. That's not quite what we're getting at here. Um, our area, um, like if you, Frankston, to these guys back there, would have seemed like Shanghai. It would have been insane the amount of people living here comparatively to the kind of city that uh, Cain had started. And you might be thinking, like, why does the Bible have something against cities? Like, why is the city a problem? Uh, you know, I've been to Sydney, and apart from the traffic, the crime, the car accidents, the terrible air quality, you know, it's an alright place to be. Uh, it's better than Cessna, that's what I know. Um, but Albert Moller, he describes three things that the Bible finds problematic about cities. And uh, he, he nails it on the head. He says, number one, that the city is a representation of human pride. It's a representation of human pride. Uh, and we can see that in the Tower of Babel. We're going to get there in due time. Uh, but cities kind of became this, this kind of showcase for the talents and the abilities of human beings. You can think of great cities in the world like London or Paris or Washington, D.C., or Tokyo, or Rome, when they were building Washington, D.C., uh, George Washington, who didn't intend for the city to actually be named after him, but he said he wanted a city so grand that any foreigner that would come in would be impressed by this new nation that was forming. Cities were kind of formed to be impressive. Think about Dubai. It's out in the middle of the desert. They're like, we want to put this city on the map. We're going to build the biggest tower out of any city, and it's 830 meters tall. This thing is almost a kilometer tall. Amazing. The next biggest building is like 600 and something meters. So the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building, was quite impressive. It's kind of like, hey, you know, London, you have a great little clock tower, Big Ben, but we're going to build the biggest uh, tower in the world, so take that. Uh, and, you know, cities kind of become this way of displaying the glory and splendor of your nation. Think about Sydney. You know, Sydney is a very distinctive city. It's a very distinctive city. You couldn't stand in Sydney and not know where you were. You'd see the Opera House, you'd see the, um, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you'd see all those things. And it's the kind of this testimony to human pride, our abilities, look what we can accomplish. The second thing about cities is that they are a concentration of human sinfulness. They're a concentration of human sinfulness. We're going to see it in our passage. And cities really show who you are. All sorts of depravity and licentiousness goes on in cities. It's available 24-7, whatever you want, it's there in a city. And the general culture of cities are always more decadent than the surrounding countryside. You can look at it in politics. The surrounding countryside is always more conservative than the cities. The cities are always less conservative and more decadent. And in the cities, there are more temptations, more cultural pressure to capitulate and become like the rest of every person, like everyone else. It's also the place where ideas are challenged, traditions are questioned, and values are thrown away. And the last thing about cities is cities are known for their idols, especially in the ancient world. Cities are known for their idols. Cities, whole cities were built around idols. You guys ever read the book of Acts and came to the city of Ephesus? The city was literally known as the city of Artemis, the city of uh, Diana, the, their patron goddess. Athens had multiple shrines set up to numerous gods. Each city had a shrine or a temple set up to their patron deity. You can read in the Old Testament, you know, when the Israelites are commanded to go into the foreign cities, they're commanded to, to tear down the high places and the shrines and the Asherah poles. All these cities 
were built as like a testament to idolatry. It was a testament to other gods. And it's where it was focused. And these are the three ways that the city sort of became this vehicle of rebellion to God. And we're going to see them in Genesis 4, in the first city that was founded in defiance of God. It was literally founded in defiance. Cain was ordered to wander, and what did he do? He settled. But not every city in the Old Testament had negative connotations. Can you think of a good city in the, in the Old Testament or in the Bible? Think of Jerusalem. City of David. In the book of uh, Revelation, the New Jerusalem is considered to be the city of God, the, a bride descending for her husband. So cities aren't always bad. The Bible has uh, a nuanced view on cities. But if you notice the New Testament, there are whole books written to cities. Think about our last sermon series we went through was Ephesians. Do you know what Ephesians? It's to the church in Ephesus. Think of Thessalonica, Corinth, Rome, Philippi, all these letters written to cities. Why were they written to cities? Well, the Apostle Paul had ministries to cities because that's where the people were. And we here in Brankston may feel like we're in the country or Singleton or Curry Curry or Huntley, wherever you're from, you may feel like you're in the country, but this is a city, at least according to the Old Testament definition of a city. We're in a city. And if you noticed, uh, uh, sorry, Al Mohler says this, he says that the difficulty for Christians is being in the city without becoming the city. The difficulty for Christians is being in the city without becoming the city. And so Cain settled down as the first city that has ever been founded. He called it Enoch after his firstborn son. He named it after his legacy. The city would be a testament to his enduring name, and it would come to represent human pride. Now, this city was not impressive by our standards. It was probably just a small collection of permanent buildings next to some sort of water source. Uh, we wouldn't consider it to be anything, but nevertheless, it would become this thriving community in only a few short generations. And it's at this point we get a genealogy, get used to them. We're going to start seeing a lot of genealogies as we work through the book of Genesis. And these names are here, important, most importantly, because they're important. They're there because they're important people. They need to be there. Whether they're famous for good things or infamous for evil things, they are included because they contributed something to the story of humanity. And next week, we're going to be looking at a lot of people. If you guys want to quickly look at your Bible, the whole of chapter 5 is genealogy. But they're very important, and we're going to work through them because they're important. Um, and we have... I just want to stress this, really important, before we move on. These are real people. These are people who really lived. It's uh, a genre of literature that we call historical narrative. The Hebrews intend us to take this as history. And we have this guy, Irad, and Methuselah, and Methusheel. And then we pause on this person of the Lamech. We've already moved quite a considerable amount of time by the time we get to Lamech because he's the great, great, great grandchild of Cain. A lot of time has passed by the time you get to Lamech. And it talks about him and his children. And we learn something about Lamech, that he was a polygamist. Now, some of you guys may think, what on earth is that word? What is polygamy? A polygamist is someone who marries more than one woman. 
a man who marries more than one woman. Before this, it's plain to see that monogamy, which is marrying one person, was the norm in human society. It was the norm, not for long, because the trajectory of humanity is moving further and further east of Eden. You remember that. And we are not coming back to God, but further away. The design that God had for men and women in marriage, in the garden, has already begun to be corrupted. And as you read through the Old Testament, we're going to be going through the book of Genesis, we're going to see polygamy come up a lot. This is not to say that polygamy is good in the Bible. We're going to read of many sins, and the Old Testament, the book of Genesis especially, isn't going to make any comment on the morality of it. It's just going to tell you what happens. And we're going to read it, and if you think that it's telling us what happened and implying that those things were good, you'd be reading it wrong. What's going on here is, is pretty obvious. Polygamy is a sin. And Lamech pretty much invents the evil of polygamy. And he isn't satisfied with one woman. He takes for himself a second woman. And the connection that God made, the commitment that God intended between a man and a woman has been kind of overthrown. Now we've got polygamy. But it's not all evil in the sea. There are some good that goes on. There are some gifts and good realities that we see. There is innovation in cultural development. Let's have a look. Verse 20. Lamech has some children with his two wives. Ada or Jabal. And he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Now, the city provides a really good benefit for humanity, and that is the ability for us to concentrate our abilities and apply them to innovation and technology. Because of the city, we're actually able to dedicate time to innovation. Where if you've lived on your own wondering, your ability to invent things and to think outside the box is greatly hindered. It's greatly uh, hampered by the fact that you're just trying to survive. But when you have some normalcy, and when you know that your food supply is consistent, you can begin to focus on uh, development. We see Jabal here becomes the key figure in the development of animal husbandry. Now, this was a huge development back then because it meant that he could lead the herds out all across the countryside and they could eat from all the different pastures around the place. It basically maximized the amount of food that they could have for their herd. And they would live in tents. And this was a huge deal back then. This was a huge innovation. And so they take time to mention that Jabal basically invented this. He invented uh, the amount of the, this kind of development in animal husbandry, and it's an enduring development because even now, even now in places like Israel and in the Middle East, there are still shepherds that will lead their flocks out to, part, to kind of graze all over the place. We also see culture develop in the form of music and musical instruments. And the two basic instruments here, invented by Jubal, is the lyre and the pipe. Now the lyre is a very basic sort of harp, guitar sort of thing. It's got about four different notes. The first person who worked out that when you pull a string really tight, you can flick it, and it will make a sound. And he also recognized that if you had a pipe and blew into it, you could also make a sound. Two very basic instruments, but he was the father of all musicians. 
He was the one who invented uh, the arts, music, creativity. All these things were beginning to form in this early city. And lastly, we see Tubal-Cain. And the word Tubal here is an interesting word because we don't actually know what it means, and so we assume that it's attached to the name, but we see Cain here. Regardless, this guy's named after Cain. Cain's legacy endures, and he's the man who is a forger. And this kind of innovation doesn't happen overnight. It happened through years and years, decades, and centuries of trial and error, creating hotter furnaces, learning how to find rich ore deposits and refine them so that you can fashion useful instruments. It didn't happen overnight. We're at the great, 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 great grandchildren of Cain by the time we get to smelting and forging. And cities give humanity the time, space, and resources to develop new technologies, and they develop exponentially until we end up where we have today, with like our smartphones, and our cars, our computers, the International Space Station. All of that began because of innovation at this very early moment. And while technological innovation is impressive, and it is impressive, for this city, it did not translate into moral innovation at all. While human abilities increased, our connection with God decreased. Humans love innovation for one reason. It serves them. It makes our lives easier. It's better. It makes our ability to survive in this cursed world so much more pleasant. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have problems when it comes to serving someone other than ourselves, namely God. And that's why Lamech goes, I don't want a wife. I'll take two wives. I don't want to do it God's way. I'll do it my way. And look at the moral state of this city. Look at Lamech. He writes a poem, a second poem written by humanity, and he writes it to his wife. He says, uh, in verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Oh, big man, tough guy. This is the second poem, as I said, wrote, written by a human, and it was written by a man too. well, now, two women. The first poem was written by Adam to Eve, and it was written for her. Lamech has written a poem for his two wives, but it is not for them. He's written it to kind of expound his own legacy, his own toughness. Look how good I am. And he recounts this tale of how he murdered a young man in some sort of altercation, some sort of fight, some sort of uh, physical sort of thing. And, and maybe it, it wasn't physical, it could have just been an insult, and then he kills this young man. But look how tough I am. Look how bloodthirsty I am. You know, he would have been getting on in his years, but he killed a young man. He's tougher. This is the legacy of Cain you see right here. Lamech sees himself as more tough and hardcore than Cain. Why? Well, God's going to avenge Cain sevenfold. Guess what I'm going to do? Seventy-sevenfold. My vengeance will be ten times that of God. You can kind of get a view of who this guy Lamech is, right? Now settle down there, big guy. Ten times the amount of God? Are you sure you can do that? What was Cain's legacy? He, said he, he started this city, and this is the last thing we see about the line of Cain. This is it. We don't hear anything more. What was his legacy? Murder, arrogance, disobedience, rebellion, abuse. 
When Cain was born, the first human to ever be born, his name meant, I've got him. Or here he is. That's what Cain means. I've got him. Or here he is. And it seems that when Eve named Cain, it seems she thought that he would be that offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. Here comes Cain. God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So when Cain comes along, Eve says, here he is. He's come. With the help of God, I've got the son. But did Cain crush the head of the serpent? No, Cain became the serpent. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan a murderer and a liar from the beginning. What a good description of Cain. Murderer and a liar. He became the serpent. He did not crush it. Look at the way that Cain is described in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 12. We should not be like Cain. Who was of the evil one, Satan, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. When Cain was born, Eve said, here he is, the crusher of the serpent's head. If this is the deliverer of humanity, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. We need a different line. We need a different seed. We need a different offspring of the woman. And as I said before, we never see Cain again. His line, his legacy, the city, washed away. We never hear about any of his descendants. This is the legacy of Cain, represented by this absolute loser in the language. Absolutely named, pretty late. But this will not be the legacy of Adam and Eve. This is not the end. They're still alive. Verse 25, look what it says. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. But Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we end with hope. Did you catch the difference between these two sons? Do we find any of Cain's descendants calling upon the name of the Lord? Nope, not at all. They were moving further from God, if anything, and here we find Seth's descendants, and they're moving towards him. When Seth is born, we can see that Eve is orientated towards God because she says that God has appointed for me another offspring. She knows who this blessing has come from. Adam and Eve remember their life in the garden. They remember their toil. They remember the hardship that they're facing right now. They know how far they've fallen. They knew they were sinful. And while they were still sinful, they did not abandon God. She gives glory to it. This brings us to this concept of a remnant. You know what the word remnant means? Part of it is like something that remains. Something that's left over, something that isn't destroyed. God always keeps for himself a remnant. He always keeps for himself a people, no matter how bleak it seems. If you were Adam and Eve and you were watching the light of Cain unfolding in front of you and seeing the disaster that ensues, you'd be thinking, we're in big trouble. This is bad. This is real bad. But God kept for himself a people by sheer grace. The Apostle Paul. Uh, you remember when Elijah, if you remember Elijah, 
He thinks he's like the only one that follows God left. Imagine thinking that in the entire world you were the only one that followed God. It would be pretty lonely. Uh, and, he, and he recounts that event in Romans 11, verses 2 to 5. I'll have it up on the screen for you. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah's really down. He's depressed. He thinks he's the only one left. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. It seemed bleak to Elijah. It seemed that the world was getting going from bad to worse, and God says, I have kept for myself a people. I've kept 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He always keeps a remnant. No matter how bad things get, and trust me, they can get worse, things can get worse, God always keeps for himself a remnant, chosen, Paul says, the last verse, by grace. By grace. Humanity has always been divided. Don't ever think back in the good old days when everyone followed God. There's no such thing. Humanity has always been divided. And the division here is in between the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. They kind of become this, um, I guess, this uh, image of those who follow God and those who reject God. Between those who trust in material things and those who trust in God. Between those who trust in themselves and their own abilities and those who call upon the name of the Lord. You're either one or the other. Either you know God or you don't. You live this life as if this is all there is, or you live your life as a citizen of a higher king. Trust me, there's always been this fight. There's always been this fight. Don't think that your time is the time of fighting, and earlier there wasn't a time of fighting. There is no peace. There is no such thing as peace in this world. We are always fighting. If there are leaders being raised up in your area, well, that's a good sign that God will keep for himself a remnant in that area. That's not been the case in every place. Think of Germany. When the Soviet Union invaded Germany in World War II and that country was split in half between the Allies and the Soviets, you can look at a map of Germany and look at the religious, um, the religions in Germany. You look at East Germany, religion is pretty much wiped out. No one believes in East Germany. In West Germany, Protestantism has continued in, in some forms of Catholicism. In East Germany, there is no real remnant, maybe a handful. It's only a gift of grace that anyone is saved, that any remnant is kept. Jesus made it possible for a remnant to be saved by dying in our place. And I want to jump back to Abel because he died in a similar way to Abel. Why? Because Abel was killed, although he did no wrong. Abel was killed, though he was righteous, and he did right. He didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he was killed for doing right. And Cain, who killed Abel, it says that it was his spiritual descendants that killed Jesus. That's why Jesus says in Luke eleven fifty one, 51, it says this, 
from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Okay, I know who Abel is, but who's Zechariah? He's considered the last prophet that God sent that was killed by his own people. The last man who had died unjustly. Died for representing God. All God's people from Abel to Zechariah, the last representatives of God to be killed at the time that Jesus said these words, their blood would be required from the generation that murdered Jesus. The seed of the serpent, the spiritual descendants of Cain, had been so good at killing God's people and getting away with it. But no longer. Because we have that great promise, don't we? That although the seed of the woman would be struck in the heel and would die in the process, crush, they would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was killed, but he destroyed the serpent. Satan was defeated and his hold of humanity was destroyed. And what happened to Jesus? Although he died, he rose again from the dead. He could not be held by the grave. The grave had no hold over Jesus. His blood was not left on the ground like Abel to cry out the injustice before God because God, uh, Jesus was risen again from the dead by the work of God. And he won for himself through that a remnant, a true remnant. And who is that remnant? It's us. It's the church. Those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in him, are this remnant who have been won by God as a people for himself, as a sheer act of grace. We did not earn it. We couldn't have possibly earned it. He won a remnant. And the earthly city of Cain, we'll find, is destroyed. Just like every other earthly city in this world. They will not endure. I've been to London. It's a beautiful city. Very dangerous city, but it's a beautiful city. London will fall one day. Paris will fall. Rome will fall. Shanghai will fall. Dubai will fall. But the city of God remains forever. The church, well, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how even the line of Seth ultimately fails. Even though the line of Seth represents faithfulness to God, we'll find that even the faithful people of God turn to unfaithfulness. And where the line of Seth failed, Jesus did not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've kept for yourself a remnant, that you have loved us, that you've called us out of this world. Although the city, Lord, bears a lot of sin, although it is a concentration of human sin, we know that that is where the people are and that is where you sent us. Help us, Lord, not to be of the city, to be in it, but not of it. Help us to keep ourselves unstained from the world, but not monastic, not running away, not living in our own community. Lord, help us reach this place. Father, I pray for my friends here that do not know you. By your spirit, I pray, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you make yourself known? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, would you impress upon them the importance of being a remnant, that you have chosen, that you have sanctified and won with the precious blood of your son, Jesus. 
that they remember your calls and fights. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.